It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. Doug Collins, former Georgia rep for the 9th District. Have we really seen the true Joe Manchin? I think it's actually one of the fairest questions ever asked. I've looked at Joe Manchin's voting record. I've watched what he said on the public stage as a senator for years. And there's obviously a lot of news and headlines and interviews now with what's going on with the president's agenda and build back better. (laughs) So did it hit a wall? And what type of wall is it? I think that's also the second question. Who is the true Joe Manchin? Uh, Doug Collins joins me now. Doug, happy new year to you. Great to have you back on the show. And to your question, have we really seen the true Joe Manchin? I'm not sure, David. It's good to be back. Happy New Year. Um, I, it's going to be interesting. I, I would have loved to have – it would have been interesting to me to have seen what would have happened with this Bill Back Better episode, which I think really shows the true Joe Manchin. Remember, he came to a legislative body from an executive body. He, I think he still thinks he's a governor. He still thinks he's an executive, and that's why he holds up you know, the way he holds up the Senate. It would have been interesting to me, and it could be still in the next little bit, to see if he goes back to the dealer where the, the bill is his version of what he wants to see. But I think this voting rights issue and the filibuster issue has probably changed that a little bit, and he's uh, that, that sort of you know kept him in that limbo mode. So here's the take that concerns me. Politicians. No offense to you, but as a former politician <laughs> or as a recovering politician, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think you know this intimately. Political survival and positioning right now, Manchin, Democrat or other issues aside, is in a powerful position. And I have seen politicians play position for longevity in office over years. And Joe Manchin comes from a political lineage, learned at the feet of his father, one of the most powerful legislators in the state of West Virginia. When I look at his voting record, it's contradictory to what he says now, but I'm taking a longer term look. So is this the true Joe Manchin or is this Joe Manchin setting himself up to be the next senator that uh, has this long-term power position. I think he's setting himself. I, I think I was, it was looking at it for the long term, and now I think he's waited, he's waited, he's played his position well. <clears throat> think about it. If you're a Democrat who is living through the most left turn we've seen in a while, I mean, just ever, from, a, from a, and getting ready to get handed it to him probably in this next midterm. And you're then looking at 2024 or 2028 as you're looking out, and you start looking for the alternative. Is Joe Manchin actually setting himself up as that, you know, Democrat from a conservative state who plays that we, what we've seen before in that long game where I'm, you know, he tries to play it for I'm for the people uh, aspect of this? While at the same point, don't forget, he still votes very liberally. I mean, this is the interesting part. Conservatives have held him up as this bastion of, you know, keeping this Build Back Better plan down and the voting rights. But yet at the same point, he voted for the infrastructure plan. He voted for a lot of things that none of us would have, would have wanted to see happen. So I think he's setting himself up in a very quiet way. And I think Democrats don't want to admit this, that he is their, you know, future in many ways if he wants to continue down this path. 
How much of this is tied to the fact that this left lurch with the Democrat leadership combined with the elitism, uh, the elitism of Nancy Pelosi, who I see so much more above this, even more than Democrat from her actions and perspective? How much of that contributes to Manchin's position? I think it's a bunch, and I think it's actually more than it's maybe a little bit deeper, Dave, and I think that maybe we can take a second to go into this. Remember one of the things, West Virginia, especially, and you hit it perfectly just a second ago, you said elitism. West Virginia is the brunt of a lot of the elitist jokes in, a, in many ways because of coal, because of education, because of where they are. And Manchin, you know, as you said before, has a long lineage there from his dad and everything else. And sometimes politics can just be personal. And he's not the radical left that we see in the party with Pelosi and many of the others and AOC. But then you take it even a step personal into where he feels offended and the elitist you know, beating that they have taken. And he sees the people of West Virginia. He knows the people very well. He's been elected many, many times. And so some of it may be just you know, part of it is just him reacting as anybody would to an offense of where he come from and who he is. Where does this likely go next? As I said, let's, let's, you know, as they say, count the votes. Let's, let's count what's really going on in Congress, not the headlines and the pundits and the prognosticators, but how this actually works. You know, granted, you came from the House, but you, you have a very good understanding of the rules of the Senate and Manchin's position. Does Build Back Better in some form, revisit it in another form, maybe out of desperation by Biden, have a chance? Uh, yes, but it won't be Biden's. It'll be Manchin's. And that's one of the things I said in my op-ed. I said this will be Build Back Manchin. And this will solidify his role as that sort of kingmaker outside of the king's role in the Senate. And the reason I say that is he cannot, if he wants to continue in a Democrat policy role or a Democratic leadership role, besides being the contrarian from West Virginia, he needs to be able to show, here's what we accomplished. So I think that if we can get, they get through this voting right issue this week, I think he sticks on the filibuster. I think so does uh, Sinema if they stick. And I think they, make it, they possibly may even have a couple more join them. I, don't, I think this goes down. So at that point, from the, from the ashes of another defeat, all of a sudden, behind the scenes, here's Joe Manchin. And, you know, you, you might see a skinny version, if we'll call it, of a Build Back Better, but it's going to be Build Back Manchin, and he's going to have his thumbprint all over it. Well, even so, are we really then just uh, taking a slower boat towards, you know, more spending? I mean, look, we, we're already there. In November of 2012, we had about $14 trillion Total federal debt, we're now at, what, over $29 trillion and growing. Uh, you know, so let's say we get Build Back Better Mansion or Build Back Mansion, whatever they want to call it. Uh, you know, w- are we just taking a slow boat? And if so, is there a chance of stopping that? There's a hope in that it gets delayed, gets delayed long enough to get toward the election. My concern, David, you've hit this perfectly here again, is saying that it's going slower. Remember, Manchin said, now this is why I get, I, you know, I've just sat back and watched conservatives who have been lauding Manchin about all, you know, I'm so glad he's doing this, so glad he's doing this. But yet he has said on many occasions he's for $1.75 trillion, almost possibly up to $2 trillion, if it's the right stuff, according to him. I mean, this is not a conservative here. We're dealing with a 
a a moderate to moderate to liberal leaning Democrat, but in the day standard of a Democrat, he looks conservative, who is simply saying, I'm going to spend the money. I've got no problem with the price tag if it meets my criteria and it meets the things that I want to spend it on. So I think, yes, I think you're looking to slow. If, if slowing of what they're going to eventually do. If he gets to it, it again, it'll have his fingerprints on it. The only way we stop this right now is people continuing to push and it gets, and the Democrats get in their own way and it gets too close to the election for Manchin to do anything that would really matter. All right, now you wrote about Joe Manchin, but I, you know me, I like to dig and look for trends <laughs> and see what's going on. So in the last 24 hours, I've seen the narrative and the media stories change slightly, but I wonder what type of indicator it is that whether it's some more left-leaning site or NBC or others, the stories are back to being written about uh, slim hope of moving cinema, comma, mansion, cinema, comma, mansion. And, and I know you know this in Washington. The story, yep. the leads are put up there, the headlines, whether to put pressure on or to shift off of or to. So I see this move to writing more about cinema, considering the debate uh, that uh, will continue in the Senate on the voting bill. I would think so. Cinema is what they believe is, the, in their many ways, is they think is gettable. Um, I, I don't think that's probably true. In fact, I know cinema better than I know Manchin. I know both, but I know cinema because she served in the House for many years. Uh, cinema, to me, is almost more of a wild card in how she's going to operate and how and what she did what, a week ago when she waited up until right before President Biden came to the to the to the Congress to the Senate. And gave a speech saying, "Nope, I'm not voting for the filibuster." Um, it, I think it's they, they've gotten tired of writing about Mansion, and so now they're trying to say, "Well, let's see if we can, you know, bring pressure on Cinema." I mean, the, the civil rights groups were in Arizona this weekend. Um, they don't see Cinema as having the base that Mansion does, and you know, maybe that's why they're attacking. But I think right now it's just that they're desperate to see something happen. So let's go back to tying Cinema and Mansion together. Ah, well, you never know. It's always interesting to watch the the nuances and try to figure it out when it comes to the media. Now, we're going to see a big push. As I said, I just did a, you know, my usual research into the last 24 hours with MLK Day, with the push, with Biden's speech in Georgia, then Biden's so-called MLK speech, but really about voting rights. Now we've got to get to the next steps. Georgia, voting rights election systems, and what's happening in the states. The states have done, including Georgia, a fairly good job of changing back to what is closer to the Constitution, lower houses being in charge of the elections. If the states do the job well enough, well enough, and even if they were to pass something, there would be a challenge to it at the federal level. But if the states do their job, can we reverse enough of this to give the people some semblance of trust before the 2022 elections? Legislative sessions, as you know, are underway. Uh, yes, they can. I think Georgia pro- provides a great example of that. I mean, are there other things that I would like to see in Georgia just as a, you know, even more precaution? you know, paper, you know, holographic paper, you know, just specialized paper like we use in other things. Yes. But when you look at Georgia's voting, here's the challenge that I've had. And I've just seen this on interviews that I've done for the last few weeks. I'll buy a, a, an intrepid reporter or a liberal 
you know, a, a dinner at the Waffle House down here in Georgia uh, you know, or anywhere they want, if they'll show me one example of, a, of someone in Georgia who can't vote because of this new voting law, this, this legally of age and, re- and able to vote, and it just isn't true. So I, I think this is where the, the discussion and the format is, is coming along, that the, that what the states have done, Georgia in particular, Texas, you've got others, who are bringing it back out of the pandemic uh, panic is what I'll call it of the election of, of 2020, and I think you're you're going to have that. I mean, every election, you know, ha- from the beginning of the country has had issues. We had more issues in 2020 that are still not you know completely discovered. But I think what the states are doing is getting it back to where it needs to be. The last thing we need is Washington D.C. dictating how these elections will be run because at that point in time. You're federalizing something that, frankly, is unconstitutional. And, and by the way, you said something about the states. I don't think there's very many. I know in the states, the, the Georgia bill, uh, Senate Bill 202, there's nothing unconstitutional about that bill. There's nothing to challenge, and they and they sort of prove that. Well, yeah, I think that's evident in the lack of challenge. I, I do believe that, let's say, in a, in a scenario, the Senate, and the House get together and they pass H.R. 1 and they get it in. I think that would lose in a con- in a Supreme Court oh. challenge. I think it yeah. might not be the, the wide vote we hope, but, you know, just like we saw with the vaccine mandates, the OSHA mandates, uh, more so the OSHA mandate. Uh, thankfully, President Trump got three picks on the Supreme Court of constitutional judges, uh, which if we didn't have that scenario, we would see a wide change. But I think the same would likely happen to H.R. 1, federalization of elections contrary to the Constitution. Oh, I don't disagree. In fact, I was, I was a ranking member of House Judiciary two, three years ago. It been my last term two years ago when this bill first came up. I had to fight this from day one. It's amazing how far it's come since then. Uh, you know, because when it first started out, I mean, you're basically paying people to run. You're, you're using tax rate. It's, they've changed it a great deal, but, but it, it is hard. It's always been an overtaking of, of state power. And, yes, I'm glad that we have the Supreme Court justices that we have because there are major parts of this that will get uh, struck down. Uh, and if you're paying, you know, if you're paying attention, as I know you do, you know, North Carolina just had an interesting rule or in Ohio uh, as well. Two separate rulings, North Carolina, Ohio. One in Ohio said the new congressional districts were too partisan. Why is in North Carolina? They said, no, this comports to what the, you know, the Supreme Court has said, that partisanship is a part of redistricting. So it's going to be interesting to see how those cases, if they go, uh, you know, on up out of the states and into the federal system, uh, how they get uh, put out there. Because the Supreme Court has said many times partisan issues are not unconstitutional. It's, it's the other issues that are. So it's going to be interesting to see. Well, we shall see. This could be an interesting uh, season, if you will, or session for the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. But I think we should also watch carefully state Supreme Courts, which are often a bit more political and how they react to some of the challenges in the legislative actions. Doug Collins, former Georgia rep for the 9th District, his new op-ed, Build Back Better and Joe Manchin, or as I like to call it, Build Back Backwards. There we go. Doug, thank you. That is good to be with you. Take care. You can join me live on the David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east on Sirius XM Patriot 125.